is Christ the King Sunday. That means it's the end of the church year, the church calendar. Next Sunday, we will begin the first, first Sunday of Advent. Advent's one of my favorite seasons. Anyone else love Advent? I love Advent. I am excited for it to begin. The church calendar has taken us through this year on a journey with Christ and through his life and paying attention to certain things about his life. But fittingly, it ends with a celebration of his sovereign rule over all. He is king. Today is also a special day for us as a church because today is our sweet 16. We are 16 years old. And our name, King of Kings, comes from the collect from today, which I prayed, Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that's why we exist as a church, to proclaim the King of Kings and to do so in the Queen City. That's why we're here. That's why we do what we do. But I have a question for us. How can we know that Christ is king? How can we know that Christ is king? What can we point to that would support our confession of his rule and his reign? Because there are plenty of things in your life and in my life and around the world that seem to suggest that Jesus is not on the throne. If so, then why are things going the way certain things are going? So how can we know? That's the question I want us to consider this morning. So let me pray and then we'll dive in. Father, we do thank you for this day where we celebrate your kingship. Thank you for our life as a church, getting to worship and to proclaim your kingship for these 16 years. And Lord, would you attend to us now as we attend to your word? Would you encourage and inspire thoughts and feelings and emotions? Would you capture our imaginations? For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The other day, my children were watching The Wizard of Oz. And I sat down and I watched a few scenes with them. And it occurred to me that I'm not sure that I've ever seen that movie from beginning to end. Some scenes I remembered. Some were not as familiar. But I came in in time um, for some of the best scenes. The one where the Wicked Witch says she's milting. You have to love that. But then I got to watch the climax of the story where they discover the true identity of the Wizard of Oz. Dorothy and her friends have done what the wizard asked them to do, and they've gone and they've defeated the, the, the witch, and now they've come back. But he's not being very kind to them. He wants them to go away again. He's not keeping his promises. Instead, he's trying to scare them with his loud voice and his thunder and his smoke. Until blessed little Toto goes over and he pulls back the curtain. And we know that if Toto hadn't have done that, perhaps they would have just gone away again. Who knows how the story would have ended. But as he does, the curtain is pulled back and it's revealed that Oz is not some great wizard. He's actually just an insecure man trying to control others through these false displays of power. When he realizes that he's been exposed... He kind of turns around, he gets real nervous, and then he says through his loudspeaker, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. But of course they do, and they go and they confront him, and, and he turns out to be a nice man after all, and he gives them the wishes, and the story resolves. 
Well, for the past couple of months, we've been in the book of Daniel. And one of the major themes that we've been tracking, in the words of Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman, is that in spite of present appearances, God is in control. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. And we've seen that in story after story, chapters 1 through 6. God's sovereignty comes through very clearly in these stories, and yet it seems to operate behind the scenes a great deal of the time. Sometimes it is dramatic through a rescue in a fiery furnace or a lion's den, but other times it's even more subtle. It's coming through favor given to a court official or special knowledge to interpret dreams. God's actions, as powerful as he is, are understated. He's not showing up with angel armies to vanquish Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. He allows other kings to sit on the throne and carry on in some way, ruling and reigning. As I thought about this, I realized that God actually acts in the opposite way of the Wizard of Oz. He's incredibly powerful, and yet he doesn't often show off that power. Much of the time, it remains behind the scenes. He is sovereign, and yet instead of scaring people into submission, he allows people to reject him, to not believe in him. And then when he wanted to come and to show his glory the most, and he wanted to do the the one greatest act of his power, the act through which he would fulfill all his promises and save mankind, what was that great act? It was entirely unimpressive to the casual observer. Just a wandering, obscure rabbi, executed in some far-flung corner of the Roman Empire. Do you ever wish that God would make himself a little more obvious in your life, in our world? That Jesus would demonstrate his kingship in a more tangible way. Yes, but Jesus, I need you now in this thing to do something. Right now, would you show up? Both in Scripture and in our lives, there is clear that God is exercising his sovereignty and his care, and yet it is often understated. It is done from behind the curtain, so to speak. So much so that many doubt that there is of God. And so we have this question, how do do we know? How do we know that Christ is king? We believe that, we confess that, we name our church after that, but how do we know? Well, we have to be like little Toto. How's that for a sermon application? Be like a little dog. We must also pull back the curtain and this time pay attention, pay close attention to the man operating behind it. Today we're going to finish our study in the book of Daniel, looking at chapter 7. We're not going to continue through the rest of the book. You may want to read that on your own. You may recall that Daniel's divided into two parts. There's one through six. Those are narratives, stories, usually happening at court. But then in chapter 7 through 12, it's different. Now we have Daniel's dreams. It's a type of writing that's not the same as the first. It's no longer this narrative. It is prophecy, yes, Daniel's considered prophecy. But more specifically, it is apocalyptic literature. Now we hear apocalypse and we think into the world or the next movie that's coming out in the summer. And it does involve end times material, but apocalypse more simply just refers to unveiling or revealing something. 
So when Toto pulled back the curtain for Oz, he was doing an apocalypse of Oz. He was unveiling who this person was. The probably best well-known apocalypse is Revelation. Last book of the Bible, it starts with the words, the revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That's what happens in apocalyptic literature. We get to pull back the curtain and see what's going on behind the scenes. And this is a great gift that's offered to us in Daniel chapter 7. Through his dream, we get to see this revelation of God in his glory. And right at the center of it is a human being becoming king over the whole world. So if you have your Bibles with you, Open them to Daniel chapter 7, and let's take a look behind the curtain. Daniel's dream begins as a nightmare. The first thing he sees is a giant sea, big body of water, and it's being stirred up by the winds. Now, we might enjoy the beach, we might love the ocean, but in ancient Israel, in ancient Babylon, the sea represented mystery and chaos. It was often something thought about as as dangerous or foreboding. It was a place where monsters dwelled. So it shouldn't surprise us that the next thing that Daniel sees are hideous beasts coming up out of the sea. And he sees four of them. The first three have some resemblance to animals, but they're distorted. A lion with eagle's wings, a flesh-devouring bear, and a winged leopard with four heads. Well, these were bad enough, but then a fourth beast emerges, and it doesn't resemble a normal creature. It had iron teeth and multiple horns, and one of the horns had eyes and a mouth in its horns, and it was speaking. It was utterly grotesque, and Daniel describes it for us, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. And one of the things we need to know about apocalyptic literature is that it shows us more than it tells us. It often uses vivid and bizarre images. It uses symbols, oftentimes numeric, to help us see the reality behind the curtain. Now, sometimes it will interpret that for us, as it will in here in Daniel 7. Other times it won't, and so we have to do our homework to understand what it's talking about. Why does apocalyptic literature do this? Why doesn't it just come out and say it? Because I think it's trying to appeal not just to the intellect, but to the imagination. And I think through the imagination, it's trying to go deeper and it's trying to grab hold of us by the heart. We're not necessarily learning something we haven't learned before about Jesus or about God. It's just being done in a way that captures us. But we need to know what the images and what the symbols are trying to communicate. We're told that the beast in Daniel's dream represent nations, empires, kingdoms. The first one, the lion with the eagle's wings, uh, represents Babylon. That's a symbol that was found in Babylon. The other ones are debated. Um, Some say that they were the kingdoms of Persia, of Greece, and then the big fierce one was Rome. But the precise identification of exactly who the kingdoms were is really not essential to get the message. Daniel is being shown something. He sees 
through these images, through this dream, what he already knows and experiences on a daily basis, the dreadful power of the nations of the world. And friends, this is an important reality that we also need to come to grips with. I think living where we live, we have a much more sanitized view of the nations. We are blessed to live in the United States of America. There is great prosperity. There is rule of law. There is a lot of protection of rights and freedoms. And so we might have a bit more positive view and experience of government than Daniel might have, although these days that might be challenged. But we need to get behind the curtain with him. We need to have all of the, uh, the beautiful and shiny things about government kind of pulled back and to see it for what it often is. We need to realize the fearsome power of the nations and how they are key players in world history, how people's lives are determined so much by what happens by the rulers of the world. And we need to know that most of the time, the nations of the world set themselves up against God. Even nations that do great good are still a mixed bag. Every nation, including our own, has committed great evil, and every nation is in some way in a state of rebellion against God and his king. So Daniel sees this in his dream. And in verse 8, it comes to focus on that little horn, the one with the eyes and the mouth. And this little horn represents a particular king or ruler. It's human-like, but it's still beastly. You need to remember that. It's not acting as truly human, but it's speaking. Now, the text says it's speaking great things, but this is not great good things. This isn't blessing of God. These were great words promoting its own power. The little horn was boasting. This was not a pleasant dream for Daniel. It was deeply disturbing, but it prepared him for what he was going to see next. Because in verse 9, the scene changes. No longer do we have this dark ocean. Now Daniel sees thrones. It's a courtly setting. And at the center is this figure that he describes as the Ancient of Days. It's an unusual title for God, but it's a revealing one. I like how the scholar Brian Chappelle describes it. The Ancient of Days has seen it all before. Nothing surprises him. His days are beyond our accounting. His time precedes ours. His experience is vast. Empires have come and gone. Rulers have risen and fallen. Economies have prospered and faltered. But he endures beyond and above it all. Daniel goes on and he describes the clothing, the hair, and the throne of the Ancient of Days. The clothing, he tells us, is white as snow and his hair is like pure wool. This communicates his absolute purity. His holiness, his purity, it's total, it's complete. And that's important because there's going to be judgment here and we need to know that his judgment is perfect. It is without fault and error. We're told that his throne is described with fire, also a symbol for purity, but also for power. 
This fire, like his power, it streams out from his throne. And then before his throne is a great, great multitude. It has numbers of 10,000 times 10,000, but it just means this, this huge number without counting is assembled before the great judge, ready to serve him. And then there is action. The court sits and books are opened. You see, the throne room is a courtroom. We can imagine the heavenly bailiff saying, All rise, the honorable, ancient of days, pure and holy, all powerful and eternal, is now presiding. And then the ancient of days and his court sit down and they begin to judge. And then we go to verse 11. And the next thing that Daniel sees is that little horn again. That little horn, that beastly human thing and he is speaking these boastful words. It's one thing to do that when you're in the great sea amidst the other grotesque beast, but now you're in the domain of the Ancient of Days. How absurd it looks for you to be mouthing off in his presence. We come to the second half of verse 11 and judgment is handed down. There are no lawyers to present evidence. There's no jury to declare guilt. This judge, he is total. He is absolute. His verdict is without bias, without error, without impurity. And this is his verdict. The fourth beast, along with the little horn, was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. It is swift. It is certain. The judgment is of the Ancient of Days. If we look around our world today, it appears that many people in power are getting away with evil deeds. They are oppressing people. They are mistreating the poor. They are distorting justice. They are murdering innocents. They are governing poorly. They are lying, cheating, and stealing, and they seem to get away with it. There are no repercussions, apparently. And so if we relied on appearances, we might suspect, again, one of those things where we say, man, it doesn't look like God is in control. But this is where apocalyptic literature is so vital for our faith. Because here in Daniel 7, the curtain is pulled back and we see the courtroom. And we see the Ancient of Days sitting in judgment. On our side of the curtain, it appears like things can be out of control. But behind the curtain... We see that God is firmly in control. And so when you are bothered by the nations of the world boasting in their power, don't simply tell yourself that God is sovereign. See it. Go to these places in the scripture and let it access your imagination and fill it with these pictures of an ancient judge, a fiery throne, a great courtroom filled with multitudes, books being opened and judgment being handed down and rest in that. Well, I think we are correct to identify the Ancient of Days with God the Father. Daniel 7, we see these powerful images of him, see him on the throne, see him in his capacity to judge. But the question I posed was about Jesus. How do we know that Jesus is the king? Well, once again, the answer lies behind the curtain. Verse 13, Daniel shows us what he saw next. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Friends, this is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. And not only is a key to understanding the Gospels, but is the key to understanding all of human history. This is the moment that is unlocking history. The first thing Daniel sees is these clouds of heaven. Now, the clouds of heaven are something that accompanies God. It's a sign of God's presence and power. We see this in the Old Testament. Remember the Israelites in the wilderness? How were they led? How were they protected? By the pillar of fire at the night and the pillar of cloud by day. In the, in the Psalms, we hear it again. Psalm 104, one of my favorites. Talking about God, he lays the beams of his chamber on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. So Daniel sees clouds. And he would naturally think, as would any religious person, oh, well, there is the presence of God. But instead, coming on the clouds, he doesn't see God. He sees one like a son of man. Now, son of man in the Old Testament was just a shorthand way to say a human being. Just a normal flesh and blood human being. Ezekiel in his prophecy over and over and over is called just son of man. Hey, you, hey, you human being. There's no loaded theological meaning at this point. So you imagine for Daniel seeing this, this is strange. Why is one who appears to be just a normal human being, why is he coming on the clouds? Only God comes on the clouds. What's going on here? Well, this one like the Son of Man is then presented before the Ancient of Days and something even more shocking happens. Verse 14, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So not only does this human being come on God's clouds, then he receives God's kingdom. The Ancient of Days gives it to him. He gives him the kingdom, the glory, and the power to this Son of Man, this human being. Who is he? Again, we must pay attention to the man behind the curtain. You either have to be pretty special or strange or arrogant to refer to yourself in the third person. Jeff Bridges in The Big Lebowski refers to himself as the dude. The dude abides. 2011, our own Cam Newton referred to himself in the third person in a press conference. He was accused of being arrogant. Bob Dole embraced the third person in his presidential campaign, 1996, and even President-elect Donald Trump used this approach. Jesus of Nazareth comes into Galilee preaching the good news of the kingdom, and he also referred to himself in the third person. But what did he say? Did he say, Jesus, use his name? Did he, did he pick up Christ or Lord or King of Kings? No, he didn't use these. Instead, he, he reached back into Daniel's dream and he took for himself this title, Son of Man. Over 80 times he refers to himself this way in the Gospels. Well, why this title? Well, in part, he may have been wanting to say, I am a human being. I am incarnated. I am here. I am fully human. I'm here to relate to you. But by this point in Jewish understanding, because of Daniel 7, this is now a loaded term. It has a messianic meaning. No longer does it simply mean human being, and certainly not in the way that Jesus uses it. So there are only two possibilities. 
concerning Jesus' use of this title for himself, Son of Man. Either he's an arrogant blasphemer who deserves to die according to Jewish law, or he's the world's true king. He is the one who comes on the clouds and receives all dominion from the ancient of days. And these two possibilities are right at the center of another court drama played out in Matthew 26, our gospel reading. The chief priest is accusing Jesus. They're drumming up false testimony against him. They're trying to catch him saying something that would be worthy of death. But Jesus remains silent. He has no answer. And so finally, the chief priest just puts it to him. He says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus doesn't respond directly to that. He says, yes. He doesn't say, well, yes, I am the Christ, or yes, I'm the Son of God. He has this cryptic response. You have said so. But then he follows it with these words. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's clearly referring to Daniel 7. He could not have been any more explicit or explosive or controversial. In effect, he was saying, I am the Son of Man. I am the one coming to the Ancient of Days presented with the full dominion of the kingdom. I am the fulfillment of chapter 7. I am the man behind the curtain. I am the world's true king. And if we had any doubt that that's what he meant, the chief priest makes it clear. The message is not lost on him. He gets what Jesus is saying and he responds by tearing his robes and crying, blasphemy. And he puts it to the court and the court says he deserves death because they could not come to the other conclusion that this man was the world's true king. Do you feel the irony of this? Before the court on earth, Jesus is declared a blasphemer worthy of death. Before the court in heaven, Jesus is declared the world's true king and given all dominion. Do you see why it's important to pull back the curtain and to see what's happening in the heavenly realms. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. But friends, it doesn't always appear that way to us. Circumstances in our lives, in our world, seem to suggest otherwise. And the world is full of people who deny Jesus' kingship and pressure us to do the same. And so in order to know Christ is king and to live our lives in light of that reality every moment, every day, we must look behind the curtain and see the man there, glorious and kind, terrifying and tender, holy and gracious. I'd like to conclude by praying once again the collect for this Christ the King Sunday. Would you bow your heads? Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, 
now and forever. Amen.